Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz, and welcome to the latest edition of my podcast starring the one and only Clark Gregg. Who does not love Clark Gregg? I certainly do. This guy uh, has really gotten some well-deserved success, particularly in the last five or six years, thanks to his role, uh, of course, as Agent Coulson in the Avengers and Captain America. He's been, he's been in, like I think, every Marvel movie. Uh, since Iron Man, and of course now stars on uh, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, But the majority of this conversation is actually about a whole other side of Clark's career. You may not know it, but Clark is a very talented filmmaker. Uh, In addition to his acting, he has directed uh, a film called Choke a few years back, which if you haven't checked out, you really should, if for nothing nothing else, to see an amazing performance by uh, the riveting Sam Rockwell. And now... Clark is back uh, directing himself alongside of Sam in a supporting role and many other uh, great actors, including William H. Macy uh, and Felicity Huffman and many more in a new film called Trust Me, which is out on VOD right now. It's in theaters uh, June 6th, and it is well worth your time and money. Uh, Clark is truly one of the good guys in the business, and I've had the fortune of talking to him Basically, since I've been doing this at MTV about six years ago, uh, I met him on the set, actually, of Choke. Uh, you'll hear about that fun story and a lot of more interesting stories along the way in Clark's career, who's certainly, he's a, he's a guy who is grateful for his place in Hollywood and is also very aware of how uh, lucky, frankly, he's been, where, you know, many talented people, um, they never they never hit it. They never get that one part that clicks, and his came at a very uh, random point in his career when he was really um, f- focusing more on screenwriting. Um, so this is this is an interesting conversation uh, for for people that are finding their way uh, in um, in acting or screenwriting and directing and and uh, or whatever your creative pursuit might be. Clark's um, certainly. Um, dabbled in a little bit of everything and has found success now in in all aspects. Uh, And it's well-deserved. As I said, he's a good one. Uh, So here he is. As always, guys, hit me up on Twitter, Joshua Horowitz. Uh, Check out all our stuff on mtv.com and uh, enjoy this podcast with the very charming Clark Gregg. It's so exciting to have Mr. Clark Gregg in uh, the home office, the podcast uh, headquarters. The headquarters. Wow. How are you feeling? The stuff you have in here. It's I'm it's just dark. looking at the board. It's these are the upcoming guests. It's, people it's, skip right through this one and get to some of the people who are coming in. Um, congratulations, my friend, on a, a a great film. Trust me. Thank you. As we speak today, it's I think on VOD. It's uh, coming to theaters soon. In the brave new world of independent film, yeah, it is now available on multiple platforms. You can't get away from it, people. You can't get away from it. <laughs> Basically, any device you turn on right now, you could watch my, my film. <laughs> exactly. Although I encourage you to watch it on a slightly larger screen than your phone. Totally. Totally. <laughs> it depends on how big the phone is. If you've got one of those really big new phones, <laughs> please tell me the iPhone 6 is going to have a giant-ass screen. The iPhone 6 is a 32-inch screen. Um... So you heard it here first, people. <laughs> if anyone has Inside Recon from the new Apple. It's me. Um, I want to let's take a trip down memory lane first, Clark. Because when I was thinking about talking to you today, I thought about I believe this is the first time we ever spoke, um, and you probably don't remember this because you're a busy guy that meets uh, important people every day. It was pretty remarkable. I know what you're going to say. Do you? Okay. It was it was an abandoned mental hospital, I believe, in New Jersey. It was late night, and you were shooting a little film called Choke. Oh, 
Was that a mental hospital? Was it an abandoned? I thought home? you meant the first time when you came to visit me <laughs> before they let me out. Um, it was an abandoned mental hospital in New Jersey where we were shooting, if I'm not mistaken, it might have been one of the last nights, if not the last night of filming, my first film, Choke. So it was Sam Rockwell in an airplane bathroom. Right. And a wonderful actress with whom he was having illicit relations. Yep. And the airplane bathroom on a very low-budget independent is a kit that comes in a very large box. And you basically open the box and suddenly there's an airplane bathroom inside for people to have sex in. If you're making a movie about a sex-addicted colonial theme park worker, which, it turns out, will get Josh Horowitz to New Jersey Where's in the, the middle train? of the Where's night... <laughs> In a mental hospital that was haunted during a tremendous thunderstorm. It was. It was. It was. It was crazy that night. And I mean, it, I remember Dave Matthews. Was he a producer on that film, or was he? He had some kind of. It turns out, if you're making a movie about sex addicts, Dave Matthews just shows up no. randomly. <laughs> um, no, he uh, he was one of the producers. His company, ATO, was one of the uh, key financiers of that movie. Remember, like David Gordon Green was on set that day. I feel like visiting because like maybe another person. Or... Anytime there's a sex addict <laughs> airplane bathroom scene, David Gordon Green will show up. I was lucky enough to have Tim Orb, the brilliant DP, and a couple of people who'd done David Gordon Green movies, including Sam Rockwell, yeah. who had just finished Snow Angels not long before. An amazing film, by the way, yeah. So, uh, actually, I, I, I feel badly. I don't have it up anymore. For years, I want you to know, I literally had up on my wall the uh, anal beads that Chuck uh, uh, Palmuth gave me that night. What, what are anal beads? This got awkward. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I do know that that was the, they were really technically a bookmark in the right. uh, life-size size of anal beads, and that was an interesting a party <laughs> product <gift>. placement <laughs> thing from uh, the folks at Fox Searchlight. I might have a few of those at home myself. <laughs> no, I'm not and I appreciate that, that you had some. I, I noticed they're not on the wall. Well, they've been used now. Yeah. And you have a strange smile on your face. <laughs> so I'm trying to imagine where they might be. It's a mix of pain and pleasure. <laughs> um. <laughs> Oh, we just got happy, sad, confused really quick. Got really weird already. Sorry. Um, so that was your first feature. Uh, it's been a few years. You've launched into what? You're already shaking your head. What? What? You want to leave? You can leave. You can be our first walkout interview. I'm. Let's be honest, Josh. <laughs> Even if I storm out of here right now, there's no way I'll be the first. <laughs> uh, are you kidding me? I'm having the time of my life. Um, was uh, a life got in the way in a good way, probably, between the, the, these, for, these two first two directing efforts. Well, Josh, life and then death oh. got in the way. And that, I, I assume you're talking about my sudden uh, yes. run, of, run of work with the Marvel Universe. Life, death, and, and resurrection. Yeah, resurrection. Only me and the other guy. That's not a story you hear a lot. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, got really, I wrote this film, I think, between Thor... And uh, another little indie we made called Les Avengers. Um, and uh, at the end of that, I found myself uh, extremely unemployed, uh, thanks to a certain Asgardian mischief maker. And, uh, and so I kind of figured I was going back to what I love most, perhaps. I don't know, it's a toss-up these days. I do love being in the Marvel Universe. Is making a little independent film and putting uh, brilliant actors, uh, who are my friends, in it, and so I, I put this movie together with uh, my partner Mary Vernu, the brilliant casting director and now producer, uh, Sam Rockwell, Amanda Pete, Allison Janney, Bill Macy, Felicity Huffman, Molly Shannon, who went to NYU with me, along with um, Felicity Huffman. That's just down the down the road a little bit, and uh, and we made this uh, hot little comedic noir yeah. in about twenty days, and um, just as we started shooting, I got a call from. Uh, a man who has his own verse. 
Joss Whedon verse. And uh, he called and said, listen, we think you might not be dead. And uh, so we shot the film. And then a couple of weeks after we finished, or I guess in the editing process, I went and did the pilot for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And that's what I've just finished doing, just in time, magically, to come here and talk to my pal Josh Horowitz, what's up? <laughs> so, so where did this where did this one come from? Because you, you were not as far as far as I know, you weren't a, a child actor, were you? It'll be sad right now if I tell you. Yes, I was. Oh, my research just a very me. no, just a very very unsuccessful one. Who you never heard of? <laughs> I, I was no, I was not a professional child actor. I didn't even really get into it, which is, you know, one of the reasons I'm still around. Uh, I had been around some young actors who had. You know, sometimes very wonderful agents, but there was a couple that were around. And it struck me as so kind of sad and funny, guys who were, you know, dealing with the mom who was the manager, the momager. Right. Getting them lattes, trying to find just the right 11-year-old who was going to catapult them to the big time. And uh, and uh, so I, start, I, I wrote this story, which kind of took a lot of odd twists and became kind of comedic and at the same time kind of a sneaky film noir about the obsession with the transformative power of stardom, which is increasingly an obsession that I see around me. And as I researched it, or researched it, if I don't use weird emphases, um, (laughs) you know, the, the, the streets, the Hollywood streets, the tough Hollywood streets are paved with, along with the success stories of healthy, wonderful people like Natalie Portman and Jodie Foster, people who kind of keep this career going, lots of kind of the stories go on and on. In fact, two or three of the people I mentioned, I I cooked up fake siblings of a bunch of kind of young actors now, and a bunch of them got in trouble in the meantime. And uh, it's a really tricky thing. And to me, it was, you know, not necessarily about show business per se, but it seemed like a very kind of ripe metaphoric world to... Yeah. into something very American. Well, and you've, I've heard you talk about this, and it did strike me when I saw the film that it, it, it does feel like a throwback. It feels like a film that isn't uh, of, of a tone and of a character study that isn't made a lot nowadays. I mean, the, your protagonist, the guy that you play, is very much like an anti-hero. He's like cut from the cloth of like, you know, I think of like, um, like a Paul Newman in The Verdict. Like, you know, that kind of guy. He's, he's messed up. He's not, he's not exactly... Well, uh, that's... Yeah, I mean, the, that's the kind of movies I like, you, you know? know, the kind of guys who've just been beaten down and are still trying to hold on to a certain kind of innocence. This yeah. was part of a bigger film that I was trying to write that was eight or nine stories linked together that were all about kind of lost innocence in children and grown-ups. And uh, it was too long to ever get made in the real world, and yet there was this one story that really stuck out, so I pulled it out and made that. And you're right. I mean, what I'm what I was going for was something that is the movies I love, The Last Detail, mm-hmm. um, Harold and Maude a little bit. You know, there's just Hal Ashby movies, great 70s movies where, you know, the characters were deeply flawed and the world was, you know, kind of not helping them any. Right. It, it's funny because you mentioned, like, a tone is, is obviously so important to any project, but, like, I, this subject matter, generally speaking, has been treated in, in, in much more comedic ways, like full on. Like, I mean, I sh- I'm sure you've seen like Human Giant did Shutterbugs way back when, which was like awesomely funny. Yeah. And um, but I'm I'm curious, like, was it easy to kind of zero in on what kind of tone you want? Because as you say, you kind of, you know, if you if you catch ten minutes of the film, you might think it's one thing until you see it as a whole and realize. Yeah. What well, you're but at. it's a. Uh, um, 
to me, the, the movie's about transformation and it's about this myth, you know, it's, it takes place in the Hollywood, in the Hollywood underbelly. Yeah. Cause that's to me the epicenter of this idea, but it's something that kind of, to me, breathes all across American and to a certain extent world culture, this idea that I, you know, you're going to work and you're going to get this break that will suddenly change your life and change who you are right. in an instant. And, you know, it's something that was in a lot of Arthur Miller plays, the idea that, well, yes, yeah, some people, but basically you can kind of know that 80% of the people will be in the bottom 80%. Right. And a lot of people that won't happen for. And, you know, I've known brilliantly talented people who didn't get the right series of breaks for a long time. I felt like I was never going to really get a chance to kind of express what I wanted and there's a kind of panic and dread and a feeling, of, especially in a culture that focuses so much on the winners, yeah. that, that that means that you're just in deficit, that you don't really belong here. Right. And that seemed very moving and funny to me. And the idea that this character wants so much, he had a taste of a near version of a child stardom, and the rest of his life is about trying to live up to that. That seemed to be right. the story of so many of these child actors who went down a dark road. And as this guy gets close to actually finding the kid and seems to have got a connection with this kid that will actually take him there, he loses his grip on reality as he's more and more challenged to really figure out what matters taking care of this kid or getting his dream. Right. And his own transformation is at stake and yet comes in a very unusual way. And it felt very risky to me, but it became very important to me to let the movie do a little bit of that itself, that it kind of starts on a day where you meet this lovable loser and his, you know, funny travails. And yet the stakes go up very suddenly. Oh. And that's been my experience. And suddenly the long knives come out. And if there's a way to separate you from this thing that you have possession of that is worthwhile, then that will happen yeah. for people who were nice a few minutes ago. And so the movie itself undergoes a bit of a transformation, and you know, I hope that I hope that that's something that's as moving to other people as it was for us making it. Has um, in your I'm sure you love your representation of your own agents, yeah. but has in in the past has an agent ever kind of screwed you out of a negotiation, basically played hardball a little bit too too hard and and lost you a gig that you had? I have to say that the people that I'm lucky enough to be represented by now are. are amongst the most honorable and kind people I've ever met. And it took me a while to get with, with that person, Blair Cohen, Tom Salley. Um, <laughs> but uh, I have been in a place where, you know, the, when the chips were down, it became clear that the more powerful people on the other side of the table, whom these people were supposed to be representing me against, were suddenly more important to them than their relationship with me. Right. And that's a real violation, you know, that's, they were, they, you know, they're taking a percentage of, you know, admittedly, what feeble money I was ever making in those days, to be the kind of guardians of my dream, Sure. you know, and when you realize that, that that's, again, you think it's a dream, it's my dream, come on, haven't you seen the movies? And you realize, like, no, it's, this is a business transaction, and, and you're the weaker party in this, yeah. you know, good luck with those sharks, a little bit about because you were kind of alluding to this before, like you know now the 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 fame obsession and and the youth obsession. It's like it, it feels like to, I think to most people like 
you either become a star at 16 or you never become a star. You, you achieve success then or it's not going to happen. And you very much had and have like a working actor's career who, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, like, I mean, you've, you've had se severe ebbs and flows. You've had big, you know, upticks and you know, you've had the lulls. And then arguably probably your biggest uptick in the last five or six years. And, and it kind of happened sort of randomly. I feel like I'm going to start crying. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> We end up weeping in Horowitz's office. Um, yeah, man. No, I, yes. I I was, I loved, fell in love with movies at a pretty young age, you know? Star Wars, Superman. I saw One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when I was about 15, and it changed my life. And I saw Being There, and I saw some Al Ashby movies in the 70s. And even though it took me eight or nine years to figure out that's actually what I wanted to try to do, those things got in deep, and I... I watched young actors, you know, I watched all the 80s, the Brat Pack. Right. You know, I was like, oh my God, they're doing this in movies and I'm doing this for 19 people in a crappy garage theater. I may never get to do any of that and to have my work kind of reach anybody like that. And I think that's where this movie comes from. I have such a deep connection to that feeling of outsider. Right. And... You know, uh, and I know so many people whose work I admire so much who never quite found the right confluence of events yeah. to get the shot. Like, I mean, I, I I had so many close calls where people kind of at the last minute, a job they told me was mine, they would give to somebody who was well-known. And I was like, well, gosh, guys, how am I going to get well-known? Right. Enough to just keep the job. Right. You know, I don't care about being recognized. I just, I want to not be dumped from this for a name. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of almost start to give up. And I had given up, and I was working as a screenwriter, primarily. And it was weird, because I'd be in the trades as a screenwriter, and suddenly people would see me for a movie as an actor. Mm. And, you know, and then my neighbor down the street, Favreau, offers me a tiny part in Iron Man. It was like four or five lines. And I loved Iron Man as a kid, and I wanted to be part of it. The cast, Gwyneth and and Jeff Bridges and Downey, who was a hero of mine. Um, but I thought, if they're going to cut anybody here, the last name won't be Bridges or Downey or Paltrow. And uh, but I, I couldn't help it. I said I said yes, even though I'd been you know people's I'd already had people enough time saying you were in that. Who are you? I saw your name in the credits. You know, were right. you in it? Right. And. Uh, and then that thing happened when you least expect it, where they kind of liked what was going on, and I'd stuck with it, and they started adding more stuff, and suddenly I was shooting a scene where Pepper Potts was saying, thank you, Agent Coulson, and I was saying, call us S.H.I.E.L.D. And, uh, you know, I have, I have a very strong relationship with gratitude yeah. at this moment, because it could have gone a lot of other ways. And you're, as you said, it's a youth business if you haven't really hit right. Well, before I did, it doesn't usually happen. So I'm having the time of my life. I think I'm really lucky, though, because I don't know that I could have handled it before, emotionally. I mean, my maturity is theoretically kicking in any moment. It yeah, hasn't yet. Waiting. Yeah, no. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm in a position to actually feel really grateful yeah. and to kind of really enjoy this because I never thought this meal was coming. What was the – going back a ways, I mean, I've noticed a bunch of uh... – uh, of David Mamet in the in the filmography. Was Things Changed the first thing that you ever appeared yeah. in film-wise? 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's actually a really good counterpoint. I was not having a bad time. I was having a great time, and I had been really lucky to stumble into this class at NYU taught by uh, a young, brilliant playwright, David Mamet, and uh, a young, unknown actor named Bill Macy. And Felicity Huffman was in my class, and a lot of amazing actors. And at the end of it, we hit it off so well. We formed the Atlantic Theater Company, and Macy married Huffman, and we did plays together for years and really you know, got better. They weren't great at first, and we really took the time to work a lot and get better. And I think the case was true for Felicity and a lot of us as we really started getting work yeah. a little bit later after putting in the time. And, uh, and you know, this was a very rare kind of bunch of people where they said, look, write your own stuff, direct your own stuff. And I took that really to heart. So when I was in L.A. not getting any work, I started writing and tried to make a film and put myself in it or... Yeah. That really changed my life as much as anything else. And Mamet put me in my first thing. He gave me a tiny part as a stage manager and things changed. And Bill gave me my first play that he directed. And uh, those guys really changed my life. You mentioned the screenwriting. I want to mention one, one film in particular because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of What Lies Beneath. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, which is obviously uh, Zemeckis directed it. And I remember at the time it was a big deal because um, it was uh, Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer. It was Harrison's first kind of like full-on like bad guy, frankly, which... I don't know how you felt, but I remember there was a lot of talk at the time like that, that the trailers kind of gave it away, that he was perhaps the bad guy. Did that, 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 that annoy you a little bit? Um, I was surprised. <laughs> right? I was surprised. I'd spent a tremendous amount of time and effort. You know, I'd written the script in L.A., an out-of-work actor with a script, and this amazing executive, Nina Jacobson, who now is the producer of the Hunger Games stuff, so right. was an amazing kind of champion early on. So this weird script you wrote, we're never going to make this here at DreamWorks, but we do have this ghost project that we can't really figure out. And I drove across country, and I came up with an idea, and I pitched, and I got the job, and I wrote it, and bam, Zemeckis signed up, and he was generous and kept me around and helped me learn about screenwriting. And, you know, we spent a year writing it and trying to find a way where in a very small for a big studio movie cast, yeah. how do you hide where it's going and that their, Harrison's character has darker stuff going on? And spent a lot of time crafting a screenplay that did that and very carefully cast Harrison, who was game and amazing, um, to come in and take on that twist. And, you know, I, I felt like, I felt surprised that they hinted at it so broadly in the early trailers. Yeah. Was the was the spoiler it, alert? <laughs> if you haven't gotten around to it now, it's thirteen years old. <laughs> it's still, Sorry, it's a great one. It was 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 Hitchcock a big kind of influence on totally. that? Totally, I yeah. loved Hitchcock films, and what I loved about them was that within them were always a really interesting psychological drama that touched on kind of bigger themes, yeah. and then within that they were sexy and character based, and had no problems also being incredibly clever about making suspense. And a lot of Hitchcock has really interesting ideas and theories about suspense that we studied and talked about a lot. And uh, it's, a, it's a movie that's held up pretty well and uh, was a great experience for me. Were you on set much for that? Did you get to see Zemeckis? It's funny. I was on set every day, the wow. whole time. They had a, they, they built a, uh, that house on a lake in Vermont, which is where I had done theater for eight summers. And I couldn't believe that's the town they randomly chose. And the only time I wasn't around was when Mamet said, I wrote this movie, State of Maine, we're making it, could you get free to act in it for a couple of weeks? And it was a great part. 
and an amazing cast with Alec Baldwin right. and Sarah Jessica Parker and Rebecca Pigeon and Phil Hoffman, yeah. uh, rest his soul, and um, and uh, Zemeckis. We were kind of toward the later part of shooting, and Zemeckis uh, Zemeckis let me out to do it. He said, "I think oh, I think we're good," and um, that's kind of how it goes. Um, <laughs> and then I was there shooting my first one, my first big days of scenes. And I got this call saying, there's a problem with the scene tomorrow. Michelle wants you here. Mm -hmm. She'd been so generous to me. And I had to go to my mentor, the director of this film, making an independent film and say, I know I'm shooting three scenes tomorrow, but is there any way I could leave early? Because they need me on the set of my movie. And I, and I thought, oh, my God, he's going to fire me. And, and he's the nicest guy in the world and can be also a little intimidating. And he stared at me for a second and he started to laugh. And he said, all right, I'm going to shoot you out in the morning. You can be on a plane by 11, and I've arranged a private plane for you. A friend of his had a, Dick Charles, God bless him, um, had a private plane, a little prop plane, and they flew me to a landing strip in Vermont. Amazing. And literally, you know, out of the woods, there's a strip, and there's a black car waiting, and they drive me to the trailer. They tell me the thing. They give me a couple of good ideas. We fix it. I read it. They're like, okay, you're good, kid. And I go back to the plane. They fly me back to Massachusetts, and my life had changed very suddenly. It yeah. was kind of an amazing day. So did you get into the mix after coming out of What Lies Beneath, which was a big Hollywood studio thing, you can't get bigger than Zemeckis and Harrison Ford, et cetera, into the mix of like big kind of Hollywood screenplays? Because the, obviously the two feature teams directed are smaller scale. They're independents, clearly. You know, I have a knack, Josh. <laughs> I have a knack for taking very commercial breaks and turning them into independent film. Um, I definitely did some work for a while writing studio pictures, but I seem to also have a knack for choosing the material at the studios that was the most kind of unusual and independent right. and le therefore the least kind of makeable within the <laughs> studio system. So I spent some time writing stuff that didn't get made. I'm not a fan of that. Mm. I, I, I'm a fan not of... very rewarding at the yeah, end you of want that, to, yeah. You have an idea or a thought or something that you find moving and you want to share it. But I did use that clout. They brought me this book by Chuck Palahniuk, and I loved the book of Fight Club and the film. And uh, they said, we want you to adapt this. And I said, I'll adapt it for free if I can direct it. Because there was something about the sex-addicted colonial theme park worker that for some reason hit home. And, uh, and I turned it into a tiny independent film that was one of the great experiences in my life. And it was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, Sundance made its debut, Searchlight picked it up, what, it was like 2008, something like that? Am I getting it right? You're good, Josh. Okay, I'm good. You're very, very good. Well, I, I remember it because that was also a memorable year. That was, I think, sadly, in a, a, that was the year like Heath Ledger passed away during some. While we were right? there, we were doing the press day after yeah. the day after the movie had sold, and well, you know, a lot of people knew him. Yeah. I didn't have the, I didn't have the good fortune of meeting him, but uh, really sad. Yeah, um, the Sundance experience though, was that where it sold at uh, while you were at Sundance, or did it come after? <laughs> we went to Sundance. They called it Black Sundance because I think of the premieres in the competition, all but ours and two others, um, uh, had premiered and nothing had sold. And the agents pulled me into a condo and said, look, we just want to prepare you. Nothing has sold and yours is odd. Um, so go enjoy the movie. Have fun at the party. But we're not going to sell this tonight. And in fact, everyone's going to the other movie, which I think was Hamlet 2. Oh, yes. I remember that. Yeah, Steve Coogan. Yeah, yeah, yeah Everybody yeah. was going yeah. to that movie instead yeah. of ours. But I'd never seen the movie in front of people. Yeah. We'd finished it a couple of weeks before. And, again, unusual comic dark tone. Um, 
And people a few minutes in started to laugh and it really connected with that audience. And that was so meaningful to me. I was kind of like, you know what? It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. I'm going to find a way to get these poor people their money back. But at least the movie, you know, was received well and people loved it. My cast was there and happy and it was a brilliant performance by Sam Rockwell and he was clearly happy with the film and that meant the most to me and Angelica Houston. And, um, and then we went to the party in the middle of it. All those same agents came running over and went, you're not going to believe this. Fox Searchlight, which was, you know, the the ideal place. Uh, they actually came to see your movie and they want to buy it. And they're here at the club. I thought this was an elaborate prank. <laughs> um, but it turned out to be true. And I had a kind of an amazing experience with them. And they put the movie out. And just four short late, four short years later, here I am with another <laughs> here one. Here you are, um, and Rockwell uh, uh, appears again in a, in a small role in this one. And th- this guy, I mean, I've I've shot a lot of crazy stuff with him. He is, he's pound for pound the most talented man on the planet. He is just, he's my hero. How would you describe Sam? <laughs> he's the kindest person. He's the most, he's the bravest and most committed actor I've ever worked with. Um. And the most generous of spirit. So Sam and I did a play together many years ago. We call it The Naked Play. It was down at a very cold, drafty winter theater, uh, the Orpheum downtown. It was called Unidentified Human Remains in the True Nature of Love. It just rolls off the tongue. (laughs) And it was fun. It was kind of a good play. But um, there was a lot of nakedness, luckily, for everyone in New York. Not not me. Um, But everybody else. And we all got very tight. And I just would sit there and watch Sam in a supporting role. Every night, just, what is this guy doing? Yeah. It's just effortless and amazing. And years later, I put him in choke. And I I went back to him and basically offered him any part, including the women. In, um, trust me. And uh, and he liked the alter ego, the the uh, cooler nemesis, Aldo Stankis. Didn't need to do it, but just showed up to support me. He said, I want to see you do this part. I really want to see this movie, and I want to see you do this part. And he came on as a producer. Really? Like that's who Sam that. Rockwell is. Wow. He came on as a producer. He helped us get the movie made. He showed up. Doesn't need to do a, a role like that. He's amazing in the movie. Yeah. And actually, he ever since I saw Galaxy Quest, he's the guy who most nails the tone that I like the best, which is, it's so funny and it scares you a little. Exactly. And he played this guy, Guy, in Galaxy Quest, who's the red shirt. He's the Star Trek character. He's like, I don't have a name, man. They were going down to the surface of the planet. What's my name? What's my last name? Which meant he was going to die. And it was kind of Hamlet. Yeah. And it's why I offered him Choke. It's why he's my favorite actor. And he does it again in this movie, where you kind of think you know who this character is and the slick kind of send-up, but he's got so much more going on that you kind of fear for Howard, my character. And it kind of makes the movie to have him in it. I, I love him so much. Everything I ever write. I don't think I'll ever want to play the, the lead role again because it nearly killed me. <laughs> but um, the next thing I make, everything I make is going to be a Sam Rockwell film. Um, one other random uh, performance I want to ask you about. It. When I was looking through the filmography, I saw you uh, listed as um, in AI, the Steven Spielberg movie, as super nerd. Tell me about that performance. That was typecasting. <laughs> Anyone who knows me well knows that was just typecasting. Spielberg had been the producer, one of the key producers on What Lies Beneath, and the main idea of the movie was his. And um, and he'd been really cool to me. He's a really cool guy, not surprisingly, around What Lies Beneath. And I, I think uh, right before they started shooting that, they decided they needed a team of super nerds who were helping to design the artificial boy. 
and uh, and I got this call. Stephen would like you to do a part in the movie. I'm not even sure they said your name would be super nerd, but it wouldn't have changed it. And I said, in. I mean, in. yeah. And I showed up, and I got to watch him working with Janusz Kaminski, and he talked to me about about what lies beneath, and was just just really, really, again, really cool and generous with me. And they ended up kind of shooting that bit a couple of times and reshooting some bits and. Got to watch William Hurt work, and oh, wow. yeah. you know, it was again. It was at a time when I was really a screenwriter and not acting too much, and I just it was always a learning experience. So, what's the what's the balance right now? Obviously, um, we were talking before. We uh, don't know for sure that it, we're not going to jinx anything, but Agents of Shield. Uh, if I were a betting man, I would bet that you're going to uh, come back for that one uh, for a second season. Are you angling to fit another directing effort in soon? Yes, I, I was. I've been very lucky in that I've gotten to be in some really cool stuff, but when the, you know, the giant destroyer or the aliens come around, generally some Norse gods or other guys step in and take care of it. Not as much on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so I've been there uh, very long hours having the time of my life, but there hasn't been a ton of time for writing. Um, and uh, and now I'm off for a couple of months, and I, it's funny, it's what people say, you know, what do you prefer? And I, I don't know, it's kind of like, now that I've been acting around the clock, all I want to do is sit in a quiet room and cook up some other right. crazy movie to make. Is is there something special to being, it uh, sounds like a, whatever, maybe a, a snobby kind of Hollywood question, but being number one on the call sheet <laughs> in terms of a, a show like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Because, again, you've spent your time, you've spent a lot of years as super nerd, as the un, even unidentified guy, and now you get to be the lead on a, a major show. At a certain point, show. I said, I'm no longer playing characters that don't have an actual name. <laughs> Like a lot of us do. I've even had actors who had smaller kind of like the cop going, I'll do it if you give him a name. Right. I'm like, we won't ever hear anyone calling the names. Like, I don't care. Put it in the script. I need it to be on <laughs> give IMDb. Give me a soul. Give me Chuck something. the cop. You know? <laughs> yes. Exactly. Um, I've done those, and you're right. I've been a lot of numbers on the call sheet. And some of them may have been triple digits, frankly. Um, so, yeah, it's very different to be number one on the call sheet. It's a great responsibility. And... You know, you get taken care of a little bit. They're yeah. trying to tr to make sure that you can get to the finish line without passing out. So they look out for you a little better, and it's also got to be nice. You're surrounded by some some pretty green actors. Some of the, some actors that haven't been in the business too long, and you can be kind of the the Obi Wan Kenobi. To <laughs> if I was more mature, I think they would really look up to me. Um, no, they're they're tremendous. I love. The attitude, Ian DeCastecker and Elizabeth Henstridge and Chloe Bennett and Brett Dalton. Um, uh, they, they're so hungry to kind of jump into this world and leave it out there. You know, in my experience, the stuff, the Marvel stuff really only works if you're playing it like it's Shakespeare with some really funny stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you've, it's got to be absolutely real to you or it's never going to be real to anybody else. Yeah. You know, we've got Lady Sif swinging a sword in Arizona, you know, so you've got to really, you've got to really throw yourself at that with no quotation marks around it. And these, I think it's in a way, it's been the funnest part is I meant to be the one kind of leading the charge with those guys, but I really end up getting to soak up their enthusiasm and their energy. And right. it's been really, my life is very much a parallel of the show. I have this new team who are kind of green, and yeah. I've just been watching them one by one just kind of flex and grow into this job, and it's been amazing. Uh, in our remaining moments, you asked about my strange odd uh, Pharrell hat. It's not a Pharrell hat, uh, uh -huh. Clark. It's, it's an Indiana Jones fedora as someone that... that As worn by Pharrell? 
as one room. All I know is it makes me happy. <laughs> Good. That was the desired effect. It's got a, an assortment of random, odd, happiness silly... happiness is the truth. <laughs> Wait, are you going to break out in this one? I'll do the kind of Rex Harrison, like... <laughs> the, the, the Russell Crowe it's kind like of It's like a thing. room, Josh, without a roof. <laughs> Is what I'm trying to tell you. Um, big Despicable Me fan. Uh, you <laughs> you want to grab a couple random questions in there? See what what fate uh, more than has one. Well, one at a time. Whatever you want. We'll take it one step at a time. Buddy. Not gonna go. I see the one you kind of artfully placed on top there, and it's I'm sure it involves pants going on. <laughs> Please okay. remove pants immediately. It's a request more than a question. Go. What was that? Seriously, what was that? I can't deal with that one. Any. Okay. Do you want to know what it's? I'm curious what it was now. The one superpower I want. Oh is... yeah, we're not gonna do that. <laughs> no, you I've do done that, that though. <laughs> There's like a statute of limitations on that one. And also all my answers are just so inappropriate now. Okay. Next. Is this any better? The best sitcom of all time is. It's provocative. I've got an answer. What's yours? Besides the new adventures of old Christine, obviously. No brainer. <laughs> Number two, though. God, that's hard. How God, old school hard. do you want to go? Yeah, I mean. I know. I have something that I love so much. It's hard not to say Sanford and Son, but I'm going to say the Mary Tyler Moore show. Okay. I'd go Cheers myself, but... Uh, oh, Cheers is so good, too. Yes. Okay. Okay. Seinfeld. Hard to Seinfeld, argue. Seinfeld, Mary Tyler Moore. Okay. It's a tie. Okay. Fair enough. Do one or two more. Let's see how we do. Okay. Finish well, strong. These are good. Well, I saved the good stuff for the randomness at the end. Christine, no one has ever asked. Oh, me. this one's going to be over the head of everyone in your audience. My first celebrity crush was. <laughs> so was it the cave woman in the days of your? What was it? She was. Can okay, I just be in me and Josh? <laughs> you opened it, it up was before you... TV. <laughs> there were. You ever see Whistler's Mother? That's all we had in my day. Um, my, my first celebrity crush was. Again, there was two. Okay. There was a singer named Petula Clark yes. who sang a song called Downtown. I don't know why that was a big crush, but also there was a sister. There was a sister on Buffy and Jody, an older sister, okay. whose name I think was Sissy. I had it bad for her. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> the name wasn't, didn't even matter. No. It wasn't about the name. Yes. And then, you know, I went through a different phase of each of the Brady sisters. <laughs> and then, oh my God, the Partridge... Um, uh, Susan Day. Okay, now you're just. I'm just now I'm just everybody. Now, now just I had getting, a lot of celebrity. Now it's just getting creepy. It's just getting a long list. Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. Do you want to end on celebrity crushes, or do you want to? And I'm, I'm going to leave this up to you. How do you want to end this? I'll podcast? do a lightning round if you want. Let's do it. You want to do a lightning Let's round? Let's do a lightning round. Okay, okay here we go. Real quick. Fire. First concert, Parliament Funkadelic, the Mothership tour. Oh my god, this is a good one. Have you ever been arrested? Yes. Next question. <laughs> Wait, no follow up. <laughs> Favorite childhood TV show. HR Puffin stuff. That explains a lot. The one superpower I want is <laughs> Josh Horowitz's razor sharp wit. There we go. That's and it. Let's stop on that one, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Clark Gregg. Uh, the movie is, trust me, available on any screen you can find. Go on VOD. Go to a theater soon. And then, yes. in the new world, coming out theatrically on June 6th. <laughs> I like that. You did, like, you did that like Kevya a little bit. <laughs> I am the... Um, I was going to make a Fiddler on the Roof reference. Never mind. Uh, it's good to see you, buddy, as always. Uh, the Taylor model cancer. <laughs> I was going to go Topol. Uh, it's good to see you. Congratulations on the film. Thank and you so much for having me. It's always fun to see you, man.
your MTV rocks. <laughs> Raps. Okay. Close. I know. I'm changing it. <laughs> I was upgrading it for the new millennium. Come on, dude.